This is Madeline Smith, and you are listening to Actually Interesting History. We make history fun, accessible, and interesting by sharing the human story behind the dates we learned about in history class. As Rudyard Kipling said, if history was taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. Now on with the show. Quick disclaimer, I am never explicit, but the ancient world is chock full of adult themes. Please review before you share with children. Thanks! Hello, friends, and welcome back to Actually Interesting History. Last episode, we talked about Caesar and Cleopatra's relationship and how Caesar helped Cleopatra gain control of the Egyptian throne and end the civil war with her brother, T-13. After, maybe it's debatable if it actually happened, taking a vacation down the Nile, Caesar headed back to Rome, but left Cleopatra a parting gift of three legions, and their son was born a few months later. That's another gift, kind of. Whatever, however you view children. So around this time, Cleopatra was really upping her symbolic association with Isis. That's going to be our little theme today. And if you remember back to our background episode, Isis was the wife of Osiris and the mother of Horus. Osiris, uh, being associated with Caesar, is going to become kind of prophetic, and eventually we'll get to that in the story, but we are not there yet. So Isis was also considered the mother of Egypt, so uh, Cleopatra's association with Isis seemed a natural fit for a female ruler, especially one who had just given birth. So that's our theme today. We'll touch on it a little bit. At the end of last episode, we talked about how Caesar never publicly claimed Caesarian. That was his nickname. It wasn't his official name, but that's what literally everybody and all of history calls him. So Caesarian it is. (laughs) However, that did not stop Cleopatra from making declarations about how Caesar was Caesarian's father over and over and over again. She had it in written decrees, she had it in temple murals, it was everywhere. Also, I've seen this mentioned in a few sources, and I'm not positive how true this is, but supposedly, Caesar may have been looking into legitimizing more than one marriage for the purpose of producing an heir when he returned to Rome. So this is kind of pointing to the fact that Caesar was like, hey, you know, like, let me see what I can do here. Um, but one thing that Caesar did do that really cemented the fact that, okay, yeah, he does like Claire, care about Cleopatra or at least wants to work together closely with her, even if it's not going to be a romantic relationship, which it, which it is, um, is he actually issued coinage featuring Venus Aphrodite um, in particular on these coins from Cyprus that they've actually found. And... On these coins, Aphrodite was modeled after Cleopatra nursing a baby. So we touched on this a little bit too, but over time, mythology became jumbled and a lot of goddesses kind of morphed together in a one. So Venus is the Romanized version of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite is a Greek deity who has a strong connection with Isis. So Caesar's Roman family was supposedly descended from Venus, so he's making that connection with himself 
but then he's also making that connection to Cleopatra. And I don't think that that should be overlooked. And having the coinage like modeled with Cleopatra as Aphrodite is big. And I think I've talked about this before too, but I want to like reiterate it. In the time before the average person could read and write, like symbolism and what was happening in pictures and coinage meant a lot it was where people got a lot of meaning and i think that some of that is lost in today's modern world and so the importance of this can kind of be looked over by modern audiences but at the time people would have known what this meant and it meant like okay cleopatra is serious caesar had departed egypt in april of 47 bc we again talked about the reasons why he needed to get back to Rome in the last episode, but one of the bigger reasons was that the Roman holdings in Antolia were under threat, and his second-in-command, Mark Antony, who he had left behind in Rome, was having some issues with a... It doesn't matter what he was having issues with, but basically it wasn't super important, and I won't get into the details of it, but Mark Antony was making a big mess in Rome. And the thing to know about Mark Anthony as we move forward, at least for this part of the story, is that he liked drinking and he liked women and he did not have a lot of self-control in the let me pretend that I'm being professional right now department. Basically, if he would have shown up to work hungover, there's no way that he would have been able to like hold it together during the meeting. You know, maybe he's sweating a little bit, but everyone just thinks like, ah, oh, maybe he's just like hot or something. And then he runs to the restroom. No, you would have known that he was hungover. And Caesar was not happy with the way that he was conducting himself. This actually, in fact, caused a rift between Anthony and Caesar. And they ended up leaving on not super close terms when Caesar left Rome to deal with the threats that were still out there. Threat number one, I mentioned a place named Antolia, and again, details, it doesn't really matter. This is the story of Cleopatra and then kind of Caesar and Mark Anthony too, but basically Caesar goes and faces this threat. He wins this great victory, and he sends a message to the Senate reading the epithet, which comes from another Roman. I didn't realize this, but he says, Vini Vidi Vici, which translated means something along the lines of, I came, I saw, I conquered. Now the reason I'm including this is because I had always thought that this was a direct quote straight from Caesar himself, and it turns out that this actually was him quoting someone else, so the more you know, you're welcome for that little tidbit. And then Caesar continued on after this victory in the long process of consolidating his power by facing the supporters of Pompey that were still at large. Finally, Caesar returned to Rome and Haida triumphed, which was basically the highest military honor a person could have in the Roman world, and then he was made dictator for a period of 10 years. He then was also awarded four triumphs for his victories in Gaul, Egypt, Pointus, which is when the Anatolia thing we talked about, and Africa, where he faced off with the rest of the supporters of Pompey. Now, remember, Caesar got his support from the populace, which means that he was supported by the regular people, and the regular people 
loved having things to party about because it meant that they didn't have to work. And it made their lives, which were terrible if you were just an average person in the ancient world, no matter where you go, a little more bearable. So I cannot begrudge them for wanting a party. Caesar, who was very good at giving the people what, he, what they wanted, went ahead and threw these four triumphs. Now, the one in particular for Egypt actually didn't go as well as Caesar would have hoped. So what happened was, during this triumph, if you remember Cleopatra's sister Arsinoe, who had actually left Cleopatra and went to support T-13, Arsinoe appeared in this triumph in golden change. And this made the crowd uneasy because she was still a young woman, and by all accounts, she carried herself with great dignity, which made the people pity her. And not in a, like, vindictive way, like an, ooh, I really don't like seeing this type of way, which is a lot of emotional depth for a Roman. It's not a mob, but like a Roman, like, gathering <laughs> of, like, regular people. So to win the crowd back, Caesar like granted her clemency and actually sent her to the sanctuary of Artemis that was on this obscure place. But this didn't look great for Caesar, and then it also didn't reflect super well on Cleopatra. So that's something to keep in mind. In the fall-ish of 46 BC, Cleopatra and her joint ruler, her brother T-14, LOL. Um, sometimes I forget that he exists, and I'm not the only one. Um, actually decided to visit Rome, and not only did they decide to visit, they were invited by Caesar himself as a matter of state. So at this point, the cultural differences between Rome and Egypt are going to start to become a problem. So during this procession to, to Rome from Egypt, Cleopatra is in a ship that was reportedly three times the size as your regular ship that you would have seen. So, I mean, I think we know this about her personality by now. She is a big fan of pomp, and she is a big fan of circumstance. And when Cleopatra's ship made it to Italy, it didn't just sail to Rome as quickly as it could. It went slowly so that everybody who cared to look could see how much money and extravagance Cleopatra had. And she had a lot, I assure you. Also, fun fact, during this time, she would have sailed past the small ocean town of Pompeii, which was a place that the rich Romans went when it was really hot and gross in Rome. Something that people still do today. When it's hot and gross in Rome, a lot of people go to the countryside or to the sea for the summer. And I do not blame them. I've been to Rome in the summer, and it is, in fact, very hot. After Cleopatra made landfall, she and her entourage, including, again, her brother, who was there during this whole thing, which I find hilarious. I really, truly do forget that he exists. Anyways, they head to Rome, going up the Appian Way. Now, they stop at the temple of Isis Fortuna. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but basically it's Isis and then comma, um, not comma, dash, F-O-R-T-U-N-A. And I think, I didn't look into this super closely, but I think that that's just one of those things where um, Fortuna was another deity, uh, a female deity that I think 
over time gets associated with Isis. So this is a temple specifically to this association. So they kind of make one person. And there's a lot of this that goes on throughout time. So I'm pretty sure that this is what that is. I didn't look into it super spe specifically. But anyways, um, she goes and this temple was specifically for expecting and recent mothers who were known to go to pay their respects. And she was, again, not hiding the fact that she was Caesar's um, recent baby mama. So she was all about, like, really showing, like, yes, I definitely just had Caesar's kid, and I'm trying to remind you of that fact. So supposedly while she's at this temple, she actually commissions a mosaic that commemorated her Nile cruise with Caesar, based on parts of the mosaic that survive and then also drawings of the areas that are no longer intact that we have today but did not survive the test of time, which I think that if that's actually true, that's um, pretty amazing. So if you want to look that up, just like Google like Cleopatra Isis slash Fortuna Temple on the Appian Way, and I'm sure the images will pop up so that you'll be able to see. But I thought that that was like a neat little, a neat little thing. So anyways... So when Cleopatra and T-14 reach Rome, they are formally received by Caesar as invited heads of state and given the title, ally and friend of the Roman people. I have the Latin written down, but I like you all too much and frankly like myself too much to put you through me trying to say it. So we will leave it at that, ally and friend of Rome. After being formally received in Rome, Caesar then had Cleopatra and her entourage uh, moved to his villa that was outside of the city. So a lot of the Roman senators did this. They definitely wanted to keep up appearances in the city. And for Caesar, who was a populist figure, he didn't want to seem like too much of like not one of the people. So he had his official residence on the Sacred Way, where just so happened that his wife Calpurnia lived. And then Cleopatra was staying outside of the city in Caesar's way nicer house. And it seems that even though Caesar was technically keeping Cleopatra out of the city, they were still appearing together in like the elite circles of society pretty openly. So take with that what you will. There's also some like Roman conventions about like who's allowed to stay inside of the city and when people are allowed in and when people aren't in all of this stuff but again that's a little involved for our story's purposes so I'm not gonna bother getting into it and frankly probably don't care so there you go so as I mentioned there are definitely some cultural differences and while Cleopatra being a queen and showing her wealth and status was very normal and often like celebrated in Egypt that was not the cultural no norm in Rome so first of all, uh, women did not have the same status in Rome as they did in Egypt. Women were supposed to bend to the will of the head of their household, be that their father, their husband, maybe in some circumstances their brother, if their father died or their husband died or whatever it was. And a woman who seemed to be in charge in her own right and having as much power and money as she had would have made the conservative Roman senators very uneasy. They would have not liked this, 
And there's actually um, several examples of Roman senators, like, basically voicing just that in letters to each other and stuff, which I think is very unfortunate. Even though in Roman society, affairs were very common, and I'm not just talking about affairs with actresses discreetly on the side, which they definitely had, or even affairs with handsome, very, very questionably young men, which again, very common for a Roman senator, but to have an affair with a woman who did not fit in to traditional Roman society standards, very upsetting, especially upsetting from the guy who was just made dictator. So even though there are still senators who had just <laughs> accepted that, yeah, you know, see, they elected him dictator, they, a majority had to do it. Well, actually, it, again, more complicated than that, not important. They still did not like monarchs. This was a deeply ingrained part of Roman culture since its founding. So basically, Cleopatra was the epitome of a bunch of things the Roman senators did not like, all wrapped up into one very inconvenient person, who again, technically has a brother-husband that's around, but we all know that he just is not doing very much for the story at all. Um, one notable person that Cleopatra did not get along with was Cicero, and we have not really talked about Cicero. Maybe I'll do just like one episode on him eventually one day. But basically the idea that women were independent, equal human beings is not something that he would have ever gotten on board with. And he really, really did not like Cleopatra. There was this whole thing about how supposedly he had requested that, he, that she bring him some book from the Library of Alexandria. And she... I don't know if she knew that he was saying mean things about her, so it was like, no, I'm not doing you a favor. Or if it was more of just like an, oh, like, sorry, like, I didn't realize that you wanted it and it's going to be a pain in the butt to try to get it. But basically, after this happens, Cicero throws a fit and writes this letter where he badmouths Cleopatra and talks about how angry he is that she didn't bring him his book that he wanted and... <laughs> You can actually, like, the letter is out there, so you can read translations of it, which, hilarious. Just, Cicero is also very petty energy, which normally I'm a fan of, but it's annoying coming from him. So while Cleopatra is in town, Caesar is, you know, busy running things, and he does a number of notable accomplishments. Uh, one of the ones that I think is very interesting is he actually implemented the Julian calendar, which is basically the calendar we use now with like a couple of different things, but it aligned with the tracking, it aligned the tracking of time with the sun like the Egyptians did instead of the, the moon like the Romans had done previously, which made things a lot easier for farmers. And it's said that uh, Caesar was able to do this with the help of some of the people in Cleopatra's entourage because she traveled with not just people that made her laugh or people that made her pretty, she traveled with people that made her think, too. She was a woman of taste and refinement, and also intellect, which I appreciate greatly. So Caesar was also busy um, building buildings, uh, including a temple to Venus, again, associated with Caesar's family. But the thing was, in this temple, Caesar actually put in a golden statue of Cleopatra that associated her 
with Venus, and then the statue also had some links to Isis. And this was just another way that Caesar was making the senators very, very angry. There is some debate about whether or not Cleopatra stayed in Rome for all of 45 BC, or if she left Rome and then came back. But either way, she was definitely in Rome by 44 BC, by February of 44 BC, excuse me. So by this point, Antony and Caesar had become close again, and the two were elected co-councils. And then in January of 44 BC, Caesar had been elected dictator of Rome for life. During a festival in February of 44 BC, Mark Antony attempted to place a royal diadem on Caesar's head, which Caesar refused. He made a great show of this. First, Caesar tried to, uh, first Antony tried to put the diadem on Caesar's head, and he was like, absolutely not, do not do that. Then Antony tried to put it in his lap, and he was like, absolutely not, do not do that. And then Caesar's like, go and put it at the statue of one of the Roman gods. And so Antony ends up doing that, but it was this big whole, basically, spectacle that happened at this festival. And in case you're wondering, a diadem is a crown that it looks more like a headband, and it was a style that was often worn by Egyptian royalty at this time. So that's something to take note of. So this whole episode is kind of weird, and there are a lot of theories behind what exactly was happening here, and historians kind of disagree. So I'm going to go through a couple of different things about it. So, uh, first of all, it's definitely possible that Antony, who we again, <laughs> we talked about this, uh, he really, really loved drinking, and he also truly did really love Caesar. So maybe he just got drunk, which I wouldn't pa put past Antony, and then he tried to give Caesar a crown because that's the kind of like image of son-dad love that I kind of imagine that they had like Anthony was like oh I just I love you so much and I want you to be king and Caesar was like Anthony like what are you doing please stop this looks really bad bad optics stop 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 please which is a definite possibility it's also possible that Caesar and Anthony had planned this ahead of time or Anthony had warned Caesar that he was going to do this and if that's the case, then this could have been happening for a few reasons. First of all, it could have been to see how people would respond. Maybe Caesar was trying to see if the people would react positively to the idea of him being crowned king now that he was dictator for life. And there's actually this scene that's going to play out way down the line that this reminds me of by one of Caesar's heirs, which I'm not going to spoiler alert and I know that this is a really old story but basically like there is this theater aspect to the way that senators and people in Rome performed things so maybe this was a show of theater to see like are people going to be accepting of this and like maybe if everyone's like no put on the crown like maybe Caesar could have been legitimately crowned king at this point like who knows and then it also could have been to show people who were freaking out about the idea 
that Caesar was going to make himself king because he had, you know, in the last, like, two months been made dictator for life, that he was showing, like, no, I'm not going to take up traditional kingship. I'm going to refuse this crown. And so by refusing it, he's showing people, like, I'm not going to make myself king. I understand that I have a lot of power, but I have no interest in getting rid of senators. I have no interest in changing the status quo past this, even though, to be frank, this was very far past anything that anyone had gotten away with close to this point. So he was just saying, like, nope, I'm happy with what I have. I'm not going to make myself king. Like, please do not worry about it. And here is a big show of me showing you that I'm not going to make myself king. Regardless of what he actually wanted, this did make people not super happy. Cicero, who was present, and again, petty energy, but not the kind that I'm a big fan of, asked where the diadem came from, kind of references the fact that, like, huh, I wonder where Antony got that diadem from. I bet he got it from Cleopatra, who's here staying at your villa, and she wears a diadem because she's a queen. She's a queen of Egypt. She's a heretic queen of Egypt. And I think that your association with her really sucks. That's basically what Cicero was saying, and he was mocking Caesar by making that assertion. A few days later, after this whole thing that happens at this festival, which ended up having a lot more negative outcomes if it was planned than I think they initially thought would, uh, a group of senators decided that they had to kill Caesar. They could not allow for this to go on. Um, the specifics of who was involved will say names of as they come up later in the story, but the name one we're going to focus on today is Brutus, who was actually close to Caesar, and he was one of the main senators involved. So on March 15th, or the Ides of March, as Shakespeare so famously put, Antony was accompanying Caesar to the Senate. A conspirator called Antony away to distract him so that he was not with Caesar when he entered. A group approached Caesar, seemingly to talk about a piece of legislation, but then Caesar was quickly surrounded and stabbed. In all, Caesar was stabbed 23 times. Caesar's exact last words have been lost to history, but Santonius reportedly said that it was a Greek phrase meaning you too, child, or it's possible that he had said nothing at all. The et tu brute that I feel like is so popular in our modern world, which means and do Brutus, was popularized again by Shakespeare, but this was a common idea in Europe uh, during Shakespeare's time, so it's something that he would have heard a lot too, this et tu brute, but it's not in any of the historical sources that this is actually what Caesar said. So why did they do it? There are a couple of things going on here, and I actually recently had a discussion with my friends over at the How To Medieval podcast, which if you haven't gone and listened to that episode, please do. And one of the things we talk about is that history is made up of people. So I think that oftentimes when we look back at these historical events, we think of these like huge overarching ideals and morality and this like black and white and like this this faction of history versus this kind of history and i think that that really oversimplifies the fact that again 
History is made up of people. People are individuals, and each individual acted and had their own purposes and reasoned, which may or may not be limited to what I am about to share. But I'm going to try to outline some of the main things that I think would have led to some of these people deciding that killing Caesar was the best course of action. First of all, Rome does not like kings. Rome hates kings. The fact that Caesar was now dictator for life was terrifying to senators. Not only because being dictator for life, you know, you might be thinking like, is that that much different from kingship? Maybe not. And maybe they thought that that was close enough that this was absolutely not going to work. And they probably also feared the worst case scenario that Caesar was just going to get rid of senators entirely and just make himself a king outright. Now, I uh, kind of alluded to this in the Roman, in Roman ideals. They had had kings in the past and they had gotten rid of the monarchy and established a democracy. And since that had happened, it had been a huge part of Roman culture that they did not accept kingship. So that is definitely reason number one. Reason number two, Caesar did not have a blemish-free career. In fact, he had done a lot of things that a lot of people might even call illegal. And doing all of these things that uh, he had done <laughs> in his career had made a lot of enemies. And I'm sure that there were more than just a few of these guys that feared living in a Rome in which Caesar had the main control. This was a very terrifying proposition to these people, and they did not want to live in a place where Caesar's power could go unchecked and he could take retribution on them that they could not protect themselves from, at least legally. Reason number three, Caesar was a populist, and the best men, I'm sure, feared that Caesar would make them, and I kind of talked about this with the king thing, but basically make them obsolete. And with his newfound power, he might try to please the lower classes in Roman society by, God forbid, even making things more equal. Oh no, this is not good. Um, even though sometimes we think about this period of the Roman Republic as a democracy, it's really more of an oligarchy. And so they wanted to keep the power in the higher classes. And Caesar being a man of the people, being a popularist, would have been very bad for the people who had power and wanted to keep it. So they were not down with that. Also, last reason, and this is more of a long-winded reason, so we'll, we'll get into it, but was, it was basically just the Cleopatra problem, and I will explain what that means. Now, you're a Roman senator. You're already mad that Caesar somehow now has control. Most people aren't huge fans of Caesar's, especially if you're a senator. And then on top of that, Caesar is not only just bucking convention, getting rid of the Rome that you respect and love, but then there's also Cleopatra. And I want to start painting what uh, to a Roman senator would have been the worst case scenario. Now this woman 
which is a negative unless you live by the Roman ideals of womanhood, which I assure you Cleopatra did not, was living a loud and attention-grabbing life. She was powerful when women shouldn't be at all, and I'm sure you see where I'm going with this, bad words that are often associated for troublesome women who don't do what they say and have agency over their own lives uh, start to be assigned to her. And I'm not going to say any of them, but they rhyme with door and it's not great. It's not great. And her reputation in Rome was already not good, but it just, it, it is very, very, very bad. And then Caesar who is supposed to be this like supreme military leader is under the influence of this woman who is convincing Caesar to make himself king because this is her fault. She's the one that put this idea into this good Roman man's mind that he should make himself king and he should make her queen, which is also a terrifying thought. And I want to go ahead and say that Caesar wanted power regardless of whether or not Cleopatra was in the picture. He crossed the Rubicon before he ever met Cleopatra, though I do think that maybe with her wealth and her resources, it made some of Caesar's darker impulses, well, darker if you think that it's bad, that he wants to make himself king or have absolute power even if you never throw out the king word but maybe it made him think that that was a more realistic option but again not good and then also he had a child with her whether it was officially like acknowledged or not everybody knew and there were some people who started to put the dots together and think like oh my gosh he's going to divorce his Roman wife, he's going to leave behind his Roman ideals, he's going to make himself king, and he was going to make that woman, who I think is something that rhymes with the door, queen. And that was just unfathomable, unacceptable. It just would not have worked for a Roman senator, who truly would have believed that if this was happening, that killing Caesar was the only alternative to saving Rome, saving the Republic, and saving Roman ideals. And he did have a child with her. He had put her on coins. He had even put a statue of her in his family temple. So maybe, just maybe, that was something that was in Caesar's mind and something he might have done had things gone differently. When I mentioned that Cleopatra's association with Isis was a little bit prophetic, I was actually alluding to the fact that Osiris had been murdered as well. Isis's mission became seeking revenge and helping her son gain power after Osiris was killed. In a weird way, Clea's association with Isis and then in this mythology, if you're going to extrapolate it out, Caesar's association with Osiris as being the father of her son became kind of became like very I don't know it, it's it's weird and in a weird way during the rest of Cleopatra's story 
she will be taking on Isis's mission of seeking revenge and helping her son. So on that joyful note, this is where we are going to be leaving it this week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see what happens in the aftermath after Caesar's death. Bye.